After all, there is nothing real outside our perception of reality, is there? Pas te dire ce que tu peux faire pour moi. Tu vas voir, c'est pas compliqué. Tu me parles pas. Tu me poses pas de questions. If you wish to avoid prosecution, I would advise that you comply with our language laws. This is the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to the RCMP. That's the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. I'm your co-host today, Becky Shrimpton, and with me, more often than not, is Ms. Danielle Ayao. Hey, Danielle. Hey, how are you doing, Becky? I am good. Thank you for coming over on a Thursday afternoon. I love it. I have nothing better to do on my Thursdays. That's so not true. You're in the middle of working on your documentary. you got plenty to do. It's great. But uh, I wanted to have you on specifically because you've talked with me about two of the movies our guest has been in today. What were those two movies, Danielle? Surrogate and Porky's. And Porky's. I know. Our guest's eyebrow is raising right now, being like, really? We're talking about Canadian icon, all-around incredibly nice dude. Art Hindle is with us. Hey, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. And Danielle, you're much too young to have watched either of those practically X-rated movies. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I love the X-rated movies, so <laughs> watched them at a young age. I admittedly forced the surrogate on her because I am fascinated with Shannon Tweed and I'm fascinated with that particular era of films and Don Carmody is such a big deal now. Can I ask how you got involved with that one? It's fascinating. Well, Don was a pal. Don, Don actually uh, produced... Uh, Porky's. Of course he did. In fact, oh. uh, the first month, uh, we lost our uh, some of our funding, mm-hmm. a lot of our funding. He uh, paid for the first month of filming with his American Express card. Oh, wow. Okay. So never leave home without it. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to get you through all of your movie woes. Yeah. So we lost about a million dollars of funding the first month. And, and, and so he, he used that card. And uh, in fact, American Express wanted him to do one of those commercials. Back in the day, they, they were having... People do American Express commercials with, uh, well, I got into this kind of trouble, but I had my American Express card. Did it work out in kind? Was American Express like, oh, we'll forgive your debt if you do our commercial? Well, back in those days, no. no. Well, I don't know. Uh, he never got that far because he turned them down. But uh, in those days, American Express, I don't know what it is like today, but back in those days, you had to pay at the end of the month. Oh, or, like the whole balance. Yes, the whole balance. Oh, or or uh, you got hit with some exorbitant interest rates. Interesting. And, and then, of course, then Don directed. His only directing effort was the surrogate. And, uh, of course, he he wanted me to uh, play that character from the get-go. So. Oh, it's so built for you. It's that perfect, like, <laughs> rough, chiseled, little bit of a jerk, but you still love him anyway kind of yeah. thing going on. And then you pair you with Shannon Tweed, and then Mike Ironside is in that film as well. That's right. Uh, so with Mike Ironside, we have to ask... Uh, was he originally written to be in that film? Because that whole character feels very parallel to the plot line. Do you remember? I don't exactly remember, but uh, you're right. He is kind of perfect for it. You know, he is a buddy of mine and was at the time. And uh, and so it was very easy working with him. And, uh, of course, the other person I'd like to draw your attention to uh, in it was uh, Marilyn Lightstone. Oh, of course, yes. Who played uh, the psychiatrist. And uh, her and I had done a film uh, a couple of years before that that Kevin Sull- was Kevin Sullivan's first dramatic film. I know you've had Kevin on the show. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he ever talked about this. His first dramatic film was a, a film called uh, The Black Pony. Oh, no, I don't know. And it was Canada's that. first cable movie. Interesting. And it was uh, drawn from a book, and uh, we shot that. It was about homesteading. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the 1800s, and we shot that uh, in a, a cold November uh, uh, fall season in Alberta. Wow. 
Wow. And of course you're doing stuff for television. I mean, Kevin Sullivan is like the king of television movies and, and how all of that works, especially here in Canada. And you made a really big career for yourself of television films. Yeah, sort of after the fact. You know, I could, I, it was, there wasn't much work between 1968 and 1974. Mm -hmm. Certainly uh, not many television movies, not many movies, not much television. Most of the actors in those days subsisted on uh, commercials. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just telling somebody today, I remember back in the uh, early 70s being in a long hallway uh, waiting to go in for an audition, and we all the actors basically plopped on the floor. There were no chairs. Uh, people really didn't care about actors in those days. There was no real actor who wasn't really strong about being able to protect actors' comforts. Uh, but up and down the the people plomp, plomped on the floor was uh, John Candy, Aykroyd, uh, Eugene Levy, Jeez. Andrea Martin, uh, Gilda Radner, and uh, Martin Short, and the list goes on. And those uh, waiting for the commercials, the audition commercials, was much more fun than the actual commercials themselves. <laughs> of course. Mm-hmm. And they ended up getting to write a lot of those in there, too. Like, I, I remember reading an article about uh, how Eugene Levy and John Candy and Dan Aykroyd, like, all of them wrote a lot of the ads, and that's why they got hired, because they would just go in, do things, and they'd be like, oh, what you did is way better than what we wrote. I know nothing. Okay. <laughs> you just showed up and were amazing. I, I just, I, I, I didn't do much writing in those days. I was just, the only thing I was writing was IOUs. Ah, uh, yes. Well, let's go back to the very beginning of kind of how you started. You were a stockbroker initially. I was, yes. And... I was a very successful stockbroker. Uh, of course. And then you became a successful actor. Well, I was, no, well, it took me a long time. <laughs> I was a very successful, unhappy stockbroker. Got it. And I used to read the Wall Street Journal with the uh, entertainment section inside. Oh wow! Okay, hidden inside, it sat at my desk. I just, I just was very unhappy. And uh, one, one night I went to see a play, and uh, and I was moved by it, and cried, you know, and was that moved? And I thought, you know, that's what I want to do. That's I, I'd kind of kicked that around when I was a teenager. I had an uncle who was an actor, a very successful actor, mm-hmm. and uh, I had written him telling him I wanted to be an actor, what should I do? And and my aunt intercepted the letter and said he'd be very upset if he got this because he doesn't believe in nepotism. What you should do is just go and find a local theater group and, and learn to act. Well, in Toronto in those days, I'm very, very old. In Toronto in those days, there was not any theater group to speak of. So that sort of squashed that idea. And then I was bugged to, you know, you got to make a living. And I had children. I started with my uh, my first child when I was 19 and uh, went into the market and uh, quickly rose and became a very, very successful stockbroker, but very unhappy. I had two children, a third on the way. And I, de- I went back to that theater group where I cried the night before. And I said, I want to be an actor. What can I do? I'm willing to do anything. And they said, OK, well, go to this address next week. And there'll be somebody there, and he'll tell you what to do. Oh, great. That's but, that simple. <laughs> but don't wear that expensive suit, you know, jeans and boots or whatever. So I, I showed up there. I, I gave my, my account to somebody else. I said, you watch my account. I'm going to be an actor. And they all thought I was crazy, including my wife and, and family. And I went there, and, and the guy says, oh, you're, you're the one so who wants to be an actor. And I said, yeah, you'll tell me what to do. He said, okay, grab a shovel. And basically it was to go into a building that had been closed for about five years and clean it out. Oh, great. 
So this all is, the raccoons had been in there and all that <laughs> stuff, so you can imagine. And build a theater. This is the oh. Mr. Miyagi School of Acting. Yeah, and that was, that has that is now the Buddies in Bad Times Theater. Oh my gosh. But oh. it wasn't then. It was the uh, Toronto Workshop Productions okay. with George Lutzkam. And it was, they had just bought the building and they turned it into uh, a theater. And then uh, one day I was their gopher. I did everything free. I thought this is how I have to pay my dues and I'll do anything. So I'd get donuts. I'd run and get coffees. I'd put up posts. I did whatever I could do. And one day I came in there. They said, well, we got nothing for you to do. Why don't you go watch a rehearsal? Mm -hmm. And I went and watched a rehearsal. You know, I thought it was sacrosanct and uh, went in and uh, George was having a bad day. Okay. He was having a little bit of a meltdown and he was a little angry at the actors and he was grabbing them and telling them to put their arm here and their neck over here like that and their face has to go up like that. And I fled. Yeah. I fled and never went back. So plan B was I, uh, I um, found out about a guy who had, uh, was, had uh, taught at the Actors Studio in New York. But on the weekends, he was coming up to see a woman he'd met here in Toronto, and he was doing workshops. And he finally, he liked Toronto so much, he moved here and created a workshop, uh, basically an actor's studio in Canada. And I, and I, uh, it was six bucks a night to go and take lessons or whatever. It was uh, six floors up, just below Adelaide on Young. Uh, on the main floor was a strip club. And you walked up six floors, and uh, you're up in the uh, the attic, the loft. And we had a little uh, a grandstand there, seats we could sit, and, and we did improv, and we did sense memory and emotional recall and scene work and all that kind of stuff. And, and this was all pretty innovative at the time. Like this was all fair at the time. Yeah, it was uh, for Toronto. It was um, out of those, out of that classroom, out of that group, came. All the cast from going down the road. Of course, which we talked beforehand about how seminal that film was for yes. you. Can you talk a little bit about the Well, I, I was a little late for that film. Mm -hmm. it, it had been cast before I got to the workshop. Uh, but certainly Jane Eastwood, uh, Kale Chernin, uh, Doug, uh, Paul Bradley and Doug McGrath all were in that workshop. A number of them. I'm sure you, you were in a number of uh, films with too. A few. A few with Doug, but not a lot. And not even with Paul, you know, I never really got a chance to work with any of them. You know, that that was a, that was a, another funny thing. While I was in that workshop, um, two things happened. Number one, I did my first film, which was a motorcycle movie, trying to capitalize on uh, on the American bike film with Peter Fonda and and uh, Jack Nicholson and Jack uh, Dennis Hopper called. Easy Rider. Easy Rider. They had called it some people out in Oshawa who did war films for the Eastern European market, non-union, non low-budget uh, war films. Mm -hmm. Sounds weird, huh? <laughs> that yeah. you would film in the trenches uh, of Canada, obviously. They wanted to take advantage. They, did a, they had a film called The Proud Rider, and it was about <laughs> a, a guy who's trying to join a motorcycle gang and all this, the travails of it and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they hired me. And uh, it was a real motorcycle gang called oh, the Satan's Choice. And long story short, there, the, a guy came out the first or second day we were shooting, a guy in a business suit. He talked to everybody. I thought he was one of the producers. He went away. And uh, months later, when I finished the film, I had to go to, I went to Florida to get some R&R because &R I was burned out. Yeah. I came home, got, there was two letters from Actra, which I had joined as doing commercials. 
And one said you uh, did a non-union film, and you have to come in for a hearing. And the second letter I opened said you missed the hearing, and you're suspended for three months. <laughs> of course, of course. So, so that was the beginning. That's how it all started. And then, of course, I did a film called Face Off, hockey movie. It's a famous Canadian movie. It was Canada's first million-dollar budget. Wow. There's a long story behind that, which I won't go into. But uh, what I was holding out for was uh, doing films like Going Down the Road, doing what we called in those days artsy-craftsy films, you know, mm-hmm. so that had meaning, like what I wanted to do when I cried that night at the theater. I wanted to do something that would move people and... You know, face-off hockey movies weren't exactly going to move people, but, uh, you know, it was something that I had to do because they were going to hire an American actor to play uh, the best Canadian hockey player in the world, and, uh, you know, my friends and family and everybody wanted me to do it because they can't couldn't let an American do that. That's what happened. And then, you know, uh, you do that, and it's a big... Uh, it was a, a bit of a hit, but uh, as somebody once said, the ladder of success for Canadian actors is in Canada is laid flat on the ground. How did you not end up going to the States? Because they were doing so many innovative things there. I mean, you had, you talked about Easy Rider, which is just the start of it, right? Yeah. Well, I I wanted to stay here. I wanted to do meaningful films, Canadian films, films like Going Down the Road. One of the things that uh, bothered me was a a film called The Far Shore they were going to do. And it was about it was a fictitious version of Tom Thompson, the painter. Yeah. And man, he was he was I was a fan of his since I was a kid because I I was interested in art and all that kind of stuff. It's a long story, but short story. I went to audition, and the woman who was an artist who was auditioning, all she wanted to know was what sign you were. And I said, Why do you want to know what what sign? She's well, I find people of certain signs work better together. Oh, so it's all about harmony, not about craft. Yeah. Got it. Great. So I stomped over to the Canadian Film Development Corporation, which was the arm in those days. It's, it was like uh, the arm today. Like telefilm today. Telefilm today. Yeah. And like Joan Baez, who uh, objected to her taxes going to Vietnam War, I objected to my taxes going to somebody who was casting their film based on astrology. If I want to do that, I can move to Hollywood and do that. That's where that's I can go down to Venice Beach, yeah. where all the weirdos are, <laughs> and make those films. So ironically, one of the one of the people that ended up hiring you the most was an American and an expat. So how did you end up hooking who was that? Bob Clark? Oh, Bob Clark, yeah, he was a landed immigrant in Canada, yeah. so he was kind of, sort of Canada, Canadian, you know. He hired me for Black Christmas, and, uh, you know, in fact, interesting audition. So I auditioned for him, and I've told this story, it's probably all over the internet, but I've told this story at the Sutton Place, the old Sutton Place Hotel, I remember that, and my character had no big scenes where I could audition with, so he gave me the lead actor scenes to do. So I did them. And when it was finished, he kind of made a face and, you know, went on. You know. I said, I can do it better. Let me do it again. You know, I was desperate. And he said, no, 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 no. He says, you were great. He says, I just wish we hadn't already hired the actor for that role. <sighs> and it was already an American cast in it ahead of time. 
But what happened out of that was uh, Olivia Hussey, who had mm-hmm. done the fabulous Romeo and Juliet, was coming up, and she hadn't worked for a couple of years, and she was she wanted some rehearsal. So Bob, the, the American actor, couldn't come in until the last minute, so he had me rehearse for her for with her for three weeks for those scenes. So that was that was kind of a lot of fun. And uh, the other seminal point that happened there, seminal change was, I worked with Margot Kidder. Mm-hmm. And one day we both stepped out, I smoked in those days, I stepped out to have a cigarette out of the house, uh, the sorority house, and she came out and uh, kind of hit on me, I think, and she said, are you staying at the hotel? And I said, no, I'm not. She said, where are, you, where are they putting you up? I said, well, they're not putting me up, I, I live here. She says, you live in Toronto? I said, yeah. She says, do you work much? And I said. I said, there's not much work here. So, no, you don't work much. And she said, honey, she says, you should move to L.A. You would work all the time. And what she meant by that was, uh, for those interesting films, they didn't want the boy next door, which I was kind of the, that kind of type. They wanted the sort of the mechanic next door, the kid with the crooked teeth and the broken broken nose and, you know, maybe one lazy eye or something I don't know that's that's you know that so I wasn't going to get those roles so so basically the next year um, I put everything together I sold my I had an old Porsche I sold that I drove cab for a couple of months 24 hours a day 24 7 uh, used it as my personal car uh, so on and so forth and just saved as much money as I could and moved to LA and the rest is history I were, and she was right. I worked a lot. <laughs> and that's and that's always the trick. And so you've obviously been in the Canadian industry for a long time. What do you see as the key points that Canada needs to be able to compete? Well, I've heard it said that, uh, you know, too much times we're imitative to the Americans. We try to do what they do. And I think there's two things about that. Number one, we might not be able to do exactly what they do because we don't have the money. Number two, I think we're making a mistake. I think we should be trying to do unique, our unique own perspective. I mean, look at the look at the film that's getting the big buzz right now around Oscar time, Roma. Mm-hmm. It's Mexican. It's a unique story that they've taken. It may, it may have been done a hundred times before, you know, some simple film. But they've done it their way, and I think that's what we have to keep doing. And, and we do do that with the odd film. And uh, I think we should be expanding on that. Uh, I think the Canadian government should be doing more to support the industry. They do some. But, uh, for instance, Netflix doesn't contribute to the Canadian Media Fund. So the Canadian Media Fund is handicapped in being able to support Canadian content. The Canadian broadcasters have to contribute. So I think that's something they have to approach. I was uh, I was just recently at a panel in Ottawa, where uh, Netflix said, "Yeah, sure, we're we're open to being taxed like we are going to be in Quebec and in Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. and we're open to being taxed anywhere you want. We'll we'll pay taxes, and uh, and I'm sure if we, if if the government put their foot down, they'd contribute to the Canadian Media Fund as well. I mean, they they say they they're going to put five hundred million dollars into Canadian production. But the way they shoot these days, they could shoot a 
one of these big expensive commercials, uh, not commercials, but like a streaming series. series yeah. And they spend sometimes $5 million an episode. So that $500 million can be gone like that on one show or a couple of shows. So it, it sounds impressive, but it's not necessarily impressive. Um, so how do you encourage actors then to, like you had to go down to the States to get the work. How do you encourage actors to stay here and create their own work and create things? Well, that's, uh, I'm glad you asked me that. Oh, I never thought I'd say that. <laughs> I'm good with that. <laughs> if there'd been as much work going on here in 1974, I wouldn't have gone to Hollywood. Mm. There is, I think the latest number for last year is $1.4 billion worth of work in Canada and a big percentage of that. No, that's in Ontario. Yeah. And when I was a young actor, you know, I was pretty hot. I would have been working a lot. I would have been as good as some of these young guys that are getting all the jobs. I would have had a series or two. I would have had some of these series that are coming up from the States. I would, you know, so, so I wouldn't have left. I would have stayed here. But back then, there was nothing. If you worked at the CBC in those days, there was an unwritten rule that once you had a job at the CBC, that was it. You didn't get another job at the CBC till next year. Isn't that interesting? You know, it was it was all kinds of, it was tough. It was very tough. And I hate to sound like, you know, back in my day, we had to walk 10 miles and with, I took my shoes off to save leather. So you were in the film Robbery. Which Robbery, you, yeah, yes. Which you brought, and I'm actually going to be having Corey on the show, the director. Oh, he's, you're um, going to love him. Oh, I'm so excited. How did you get involved with this? Because you, of course, are a Canadian film icon. How often do people offer you things? Well, you know, Corey will probably tell you, oh, we had him in mind from the beginning. But it was a kind of a very funny story, weird story. And uh, one that, you know, um, I'm not going to let my, I, I was, wasn't going to let my, it bother my ego. So... The producer, a friend, a friend, a guy I've known, Michael James Reagan. I don't know if you know of Michael James Reagan, but he does a lot of production in, in Toronto, low budget. And he's always invited me to the screenings, and I've always come and been a big, big supporter. And he kept saying, well, we got to work together. So one day, he, he got in touch with me in the morning, and he said, I'm doing this short that's like an idea for a feature film. It involves some people who uh, find out uh, if there's a, uh, a woman who thinks she's, there's ghosts in her house, a rich woman who thinks there's ghosts. So we come and we're a team and we're going to exercise the ghosts. But meanwhile, they check out all the artwork and, and they, then they make copies of the artwork. So while they're in the house pretending to exercise, they copy. That's the short they were going to do, right? He says, we lost our, our leader guy, uh, older guy. He's younger than you are, but, but would you fill in for us last minute? I said, sure. No problem. So then, just early afternoon, suddenly, he, he, he sends me an email. He says, I got a better idea. <laughs> There's this, this kid who's doing this young, this guy, of course, doing this script. And he, I'm going to send you the, the, I told him about you, and I'm going to send you the script and the synopsis. So I, that, I have a son down in L.A. that was born and raised there, and he's just gotten into acting. He was up there visiting me, and we were driving around doing a whole bunch of stuff. I said, well, okay, send me, uh, you know, so he sends me those, but all I can really do is read the synopsis of robbery. Mm -hmm. I like the synopsis. It's great. And Corey wrote that. I, I get him back. I said, okay, look, I haven't read the script yet, but I love the synopsis. And if the script's any good, 
uh, I want to do it. But I said, I, I got to meet Corey first, you know, first time director, first time everything. And, and on the front of the script, it says, written by Corey Stanton, M.D.? Yeah. You know, so I, I, I got to meet this guy. Yeah, and after doctors and lawyers in the 70s, yeah. you know, what are you going to do with that? So right? we're driving around, driving around, doing, Zeke and I, I'm, I'm taking him around, and he's got to get his passport and all kinds of stuff. He's only got a short. So we agree to meet in North York, not far from where Corey lives, at some restaurant. So we go there. That restaurant's closed. Corey shows up. We go into some sort of dive restaurant. That's not really that good. So we're going to sit down. But I'm hungry. I haven't eaten all day. I've been running around with my son. So I go over and look at the through the glass. And, you know, the only thing I see that kind of looks like it might fill me up and, sat, you know, so I can sit and not be all hypoglycemic talking to Corey is some chili, right? So I order the chili. And I go over and I sit down and I'm talking to Corey, eat the chili. And I think we hit it off. It was great. He was, I asked him a few questions, you know, it was, it was great. And, uh, and I said, okay, look, I like you. I like the whole idea of this film. I, you know, we explained some more, filled in some gaps. I said, okay, I'm going to go home, read the script and I will let you know tonight. Okay. Cause I know you're, you're, you know, you're anxious to know. So I went home and I read the script. And in the script, it's about this career criminal, me, who has dementia or a touch of dementia. And the kid shows up, plasts photos all over the all over the house. Your son, you know, has to. But what he wants me to do, I'm a career criminal, and I've just served 20 years, and I'm coming back into the house, and we've got the old car there and everything. I, he wants me to teach him to do crime heists mm -hmm. and help him and all that kind of stuff. So... That evolves. He also works for a garage, auto repair garage, for run by Tara Spencer Narn. Okay, yes. and he steals food that she gives to her watchdogs, the the German shepherds, and brings it home and feeds it to me in cans. Right? There's just at one point in the scene he opens the cupboard and these all these cans of food. <laughs> Guess what it is? It's chilly, isn't it? It's chilly. Of course it is. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me, I sat there in front of Corey in this dive restaurant eating chili, talking to him. He must have thought, this guy's read the script or something, but I hadn't. <laughs> so then I, when I saw that, and that was that's about a third of the way through the script, I knew it was meant to be. I quickly read the rest of it and jumped on it, and uh, I am so glad I did. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, Danielle really loved the film. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I, I loved it. Well, it's... It doesn't take itself too seriously, you know. Even with the bad guys looming over and kind of watching him, they, there's still so much humor to it. Yeah. So I don't know. I really enjoyed it. Well, we tried to we tried to put, you know, I mean, there is humor in it, and and, and Corey writes it so well and directed it so well too. I was, I was amazed, and he he does everything. He's a dynamo. Like we wrapped, we shot it in twelve days. Wow. I was telling the, the some people at the conference that they were there. They had seen a trailer of it. They showed a trailer of it yesterday morning at conference, and everybody was coming up to me and raving about my performance in the trailer. For God's sake! So I said, "Yeah, yeah, it was a very small crew. You know, it was a tip production." Yeah, I said the the one guy would do the lights, and the other guy would do the wiring. <laughs> like both of them, that was the crew. You know, I'm I'm kind of being facetious, but it was a very very small crew, and. Uh, so we wrapped. We shot in 12 days. Very quick. Uh, his mom and dad did catering. 
His his mom or dad would pick me up and drive me to the set. Amazing. Because they were all over the place, you know, mostly up in Innisfil, and I live in King City, so it was about a half-hour drive and stuff like that. So we wrap, and Corey's wiped out. I I kept telling him, because I'm a director too, and I gave him some advice about directing and everything. I said, you got to make sure you're in shape. You got to, you know, be strong because it's long hours, and you got to constantly be focused as the director because you're the leader. And every every morning I'd say to him, did you sleep last night? He said, no. He said, I was thinking, first part of the night, I was thinking about what we had shot. And the second part of the night, I was thinking about what we're going to shoot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he wasn't getting any sleep, he said. And by the end of it, he looked very haggard, and he, he doesn't have much weight on him. So he looked uh, very drawn and quartered, you know. So about two weeks, two and a half weeks, maybe, he lives he lives at, with his mom and dad. But that's not a problem. They're great. I mean, that, that you know, but it is kind of funny. He phones me up and says, you want to come, you want to see a screening of the film? Okay. It, we're going to have it down in my basement at my parents' place, you know. So, okay. Just the family and you and, and Brooke, my wife. So we're driving there. I said to Brooke, don't expect too much. Don't get your hopes up because I don't know what, if we got it, what we got, anything else. By, the, by halfway through the film, I forgot I was watching myself. Wow. By the end of the film, my jaw was on the floor. He, he edited two and a half weeks, did his own music, did the edit, did some editing tricks in there. You saw it too, right? Yeah. And he took he took scenes where, you know, like you think it's a flash forward or so, you know, some something happens suddenly this and cutting and all kinds of tricks, you'd call them, or, you know, styles of editing. And the guy's like a year and a half out of medical school. And had the same stockbroker moment you did, I'm sure. Yeah, and then, you know, I mean, the only other thing he shot before that, I, I'd seen it, he linked me to it, was a kind of a pretty straightforward documentary, if you would call it that. It almost looks like a training film of medical interns and how they, they get assigned to intern at some hospital and what their hopes are. And if they get one, they get the, an internship at some place or something like And that was it. So, you know. Well, I'm curious. Is so he's a, a young person and he's writing about dementia, and I can't help but think about Sarah Pauly writing about Alzheimer's and away from her and that sort of point of view. Did you have any thoughts coming into it uh, about a young person who's writing for a character like that or any no. contributions? Because he no. was a doctor. He's a doctor. So he, 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 he and knows. He, and he he did do his he did work in a hospital. You know, like 35, 30 hours, forty hours a day. Ask him about that. You know, and and. Uh, um, although his specialty, he, he said, would have been uh, uh, pediatrics. Mm. I think that's what he said. But, but nonetheless, you know, that's his, it's still his interest. It's still, you know, medicine is still his interest. And I think, I think his next film and, and, you know, I think he says he's got a couple of projects that are in that area. So he's not going to move too far away from that. And I think it's, it's something he felt comfortable with. And, and, Jeremy, the the male lead in it, uh, is is his best friend. Oh, of course. <laughs> so, These are the right kinds of friends you need to have. So yeah, he 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 didn't like the fact that Jeremy wasn't getting a lot of offers because there isn't a lot of lot to get offered here in this country, and um, so he said, "I'm going to write something for you." So so he did. 
Well, he's working, so you're in the film, and so is Jennifer Dale, who's another icon who I've had on the show before. And I've worked with her a few times. Yeah, she's she's well. Um, we got you through uh, Rosemary Dunsmore. I was like, oh yeah, she, he's been my husband like three times. That's <laughs> like, right. Yeah, she's my other wife. Yes, you just keep making the rounds. Um, when you work with other Canadian icons, do you find that there's a sense on set of like the reverence of who you are and what you've done, or do no. you just show up like everybody else? No, no, uh, because you know. We don't look at ourselves as iconic, you know. I, there's another joke about Canadian actors that uh, uh, the two best ways of being anonymous in, in Canada is to be either in the witness protection program or to be a famous Canadian actor. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, it sounds, it sounds dreary and, and uh, <laughs> defeatist, but, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, Gordon... Pinson is, you know, uh, beyond famous. He's a legend. Uh, but it doesn't transfer into the same thing as, uh, say, Gordon Lightfoot, uh, who, with his music, makes all kinds of money. You know, Gordon's not uh, multimillionaire like like uh, Gordon Lightfoot is. It, it, it doesn't translate the same way, you know. Uh, you might get some awards. You might get an Order of Canada, which I want to have, by the way. Some of my friends have one, and I want one. We'll put that out to the universe. Put that out, will you, yeah. in the universe? I think you, somebody has to request it, but um, and not yourself. You know. <laughs> Excuse me, yeah, uh, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you're ready. Uh, but that you know, so that's that. So we don't we don't look at it that way. We're just you know, uh, I always say that um, you know American movie stars are just like us. They put their pants on. Uh, one leg at a time with the help of their assistant. <laughs> Very true. But I mean, Canada has always been a, a DIY sort of country in that way. I know the Americans are very proud of their like, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. What's DIY? I'm oh, do it not yourself. Yeah. Well, ca Canadian actors too, they have a reputation and rightly so because of what I was telling you in the beginning, you know, we were there in that hallway that w when we get a job, we're so grateful yeah. and we work so hard at it. And we, you know, um, We'll just do anything to keep to make it good and make it better and make it the best and 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 uh, we're dedicated to the scene, the movie you're doing, and uh, and we're just happy to be working. It's just it's fabulous. I always tell people, you know, for me, uh, a set is like Disneyland. I'm I I look at it as a party with no booze. Yeah. I'm out there. I I go to the set when I'm not working. I scare the hell out out of the first AD too. <laughs> First assistant director. He thinks he's ahead in his schedule. He looks over and sees me coming in. He says, "Oh my God, I got another scene I didn't know about." You know, <laughs> now I'm an hour and a half behind. You know, what do you get from sets? Is it just the feeling of being there? Or what the do you camaraderie, uh, the people that are attracted to f to film and television, uh, you know, movie making, shall we say? Uh, they're people who don't want to be in a cubicle. They don't want to be in a box. They don't want to be in an office they don't want to be in a garage they want to be they'll work their ass off for 18 hours so that they can uh make some a few bucks and 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 be part of something that came out of thin air that's the thing i always tell the politicians who to back our industry i say you don't have to suck it out of the ground like oil or fish till there's no fish left or cut down like trees. I said, we can create everything out of thin air yeah. if you help us.
That's all. And and all this work comes out of thin air. It's magic. But, but you know, you need help. And, and you need these dedicated people like I'm talking about. And they're all unique individuals. I was on one film where almost all the people in the different crafts, you know, the sound guy, everybody, was a filmmaker. In fact, this is quite a few years ago, the driver, the guide going back and forth from, we were shooting up by Lake Simcoe and was driving the cans of film back in the day and, and picking up the rushes from the day before and driving them up, that guy was Bruce McDonald. Of course, of course. Yep. Okay, before he became a director. And what was the name of his first hit film? Oh, it was uh, oh, Roadkill. Roadkill, yes. <laughs> Which he probably inspired him from driving at night back and forth down from Lake Simcoe. Which also was a play on going down the road. Exactly. Which brings us full We're circle. Full circle, right back to the beginning. So I have to add, I mean, what you really want people to do as a filmmaker is to give people those same experiences that you had while sitting in that theater and that you cried and you look and you go, I want to do this. I'm moved. I'm changed. That's the whole point of the magic. That's right. Oh. Exactly. So I have to ask, what movies do you recommend to our Canadian listeners to check out to feel that magic that you've got? Well, um, you know, Gordon Pinson did a great film that I don't know if you can find it anywhere. It's kind of hard, called The Rowdy Man. It mm -hmm, was of one course. of my favorite films. Uh, Wedding in White was another one that uh, some of the people cast from Going Down the Road did. Paul Paul Bradley, I think Doug was in that as well. Um what are some of my other favorite Canadian films? Uh, Nanook of the North, was that? Uh, yes. From 1915, I think. Yep, that's right. It's one of the first. It's a technically a documentary. Did you, did you look not, that up? I <laughs> did. I was actually familiar with it because it's, um, yeah. You it's, had, you it's had one of the filmmakers on. Right? It's had, oh, yeah. No problem. We just channeled them in through the Ouija board. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Um, I mean, any number of them, but... but um, I mean, they're coming out daily. I mean, almost. It seems like that. They're they're go to Canadian film festivals. Go to go to uh, the Carlton on Young. Always is having Canadian film festivals, either shorts or uh, longer films. A great uh, a Canadian director who does uh, her own uh, low budget films. She, she augments that by t television directing and things like that. Is a woman named. Gail Harvey. Of course, we are very big fans of Gail Harvey, yeah. who also worked with Shannon Tweed in Cold Sweat. Okay, there yep. you go. <laughs> and of course, Shannon Tweed. Who can forget the glorious Shannon Tweed? She is an icon. <laughs> Whether she wants to be or not, she is an she, icon. She's two icons, as a, as a matter of fact. Of, of course she is. Well, Art, uh, thank you so, so much for your time. We have to end We have to end here, unfortunately. All right. I know we could have you all day. Um, well, have me back, you know. Like we'll do... Uh, Art Hindle, the sequel, oh, part two. Art part two. I'm yeah, into it. <laughs> just go on for. I could probably talk forever, but thank you both, and good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Royal Canadian Movie Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please remember to rate us and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcatcher. It helps people find our podcast and Canadian media they love. Come chat with us at RCM Pod on Facebook or on Twitter at RCM Pod. Our theme song is by Craig Stewart, and our show art is by Paul Stachniak. Join us next week for another great film from the wilds of Canadian cinema.